And we're talking about the heroes of our faith, and we're looking at David's life. And um, for those of us who may have not been here recently, we've been looking at the early season. Now, David is on the run. This is just good for us to know. David is on the run because the king of Israel, King Saul, is looking to eliminate him from the land of the living. There's no other way to say it, except that Saul is hunting for him like an animal. And David is accompanied by 400 men of a peculiar nature. They were told that they're men who are distressed, indebted, and, and bitter in soul. And he has family members also that, that join him in the caves of Adullam. And we spent a good amount of time talking about David's initial escape from the palace last week. But we're going to move a couple months, perhaps even over a year later, in which Saul continues to hunt David down. And he gets rather close to meeting David face to face. But David continues to escape. And so there's this one interaction. The first interaction in which Saul gets what he wants, a face-to-face meeting with David. Except this meeting, it doesn't go as King Saul would have preferred. It actually goes rather differently. If you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and step into this together and we'll read in 1 Samuel 24, just a couple, we'll just walk through this account and we're told that after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. We're told from the very beginning that Saul had been on a military campaign. He had been fighting his enemies, the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. But we're not given any detail as to what happened there. Why? Because the entire focus of Saul is on David. And so he comes back home and he's given this report. Saul, we found, we got word of where David is at. Oh yeah, where is he? He's in En Gedi. And En Gedi is an oasis in the middle of a desert on the western side of the Dead Sea. It is a location that is filled with limestone mountains and caves. There's a river of natural spring water that runs through it into the sea. There are pools that develop, waterfalls that are all through it. It is an oasis that is able to sustain life. And I asked them just kind of for our own reference. This is a location you and I, you and me can go to whenever we want. You know, if we are able to, and we can see it right here. We see the, an image of the caves of En Gedi. And this is, this is what the mountains look like. Those holes off in the distance are those caves. And though they look small, if you can believe it, historians have accounted of moments in history where up to 30,000 men were hidden throughout these caves. And so they look deceptively small. They're actually quite enormous in their expanse, and they're able to accommodate large amounts of people. And as you walk through them, you see that certain caves have easy access. Certain caves aren't easily accessible. They're more higher off in the distance. And, and that's where the, the goats would, would live, is, is why it was referred to as the rocks of the wild goats. And, and Saul gets a, an idea of this because, look, David knows what's in En Gedi. If you see the next picture, what we see is we see the water running through it in the middle of it. You have to know how to get there. But paths have been discovered where in the middle of the mountain is natural spring that develops into a waterfall, into a pool. It it, it is a beautiful, life-sustaining location to hide away, a refuge. Saul hears, that is where David is at. And so he gathers 3,000 men. Now, it's not just any kind of men. Look at what kind of men he gathers. It says in verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel. He chooses special forces. 
The best of the best. And the irony is, Saul gathers the best men he has at his disposal to chase down, arguably, the best commander he ever had. Leaving nothing to chance, using every resource he has, he moves his way towards En Gedi. And no doubt he surrounds the mountain. And as he gets there, we're told in verse 3 that at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. This is a moment in which Saul unknowingly fatigued from the previous military campaign and this ongoing pursuit, tenacious hunt of David's life. Has his men stationed outside the mountain. We get the sense that he is fatigued. He makes his way into the cave. Now here's where there is some disagreement. Some say, well, Saul went into rest. Others say he went into the cave to use the restroom. There's really not much agreement here. And I, I'd like to believe that actually he went into rest. And, to, and I imagine him moving into the entrance of the cave. And, and outside would be his men, his, maybe his bodyguards stationed. And in the deeper recesses of the cave would be David and his men. And they would no doubt be hiding there. And they would be waiting quietly, not knowing what's going on during the day, probably making their way out during the night only. As they look down, most likely David's men see the silhouette of a man who, by the way, was known to be head and shoulders taller than anyone else around him. They see the robe. They recognize this is Saul. They, that's Saul. They make their way over to David, and they all of a sudden become theologians, <laughs> prophets. Because they look at David, and what do they say? They tell him, it's almost so obvious. Do you see that Saul? Do you not see it? The circumstances are clear. Look, to, look, this, now's your opportunity. And if you don't know how to interpret it, we'll tell you. <laughs> because now, today, the Lord is telling you. I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. David, David, David. Saul is here. God is speaking to you. Do you hear it? He's saying, here is your enemy. Do whatever you want. Now go get him. Get him. And end this. Why? Because these are men who were desperate to get home, who were angry of their own oppression, not wanting to be on exile, many months, many days, many nights on the run, not knowing always looking back over their shoulder, they are now convincing David to take things into his own hands and they ask him to do what Saul had come to do to him. And you get the idea, David is sitting there listening, watching, recognizing, yes, indeed, this is King Saul. And something inside of these men is now sitting on the edge as David, no doubt, grabs his sword or his dagger, some sort of weapon with a sharp edge, and he makes his way, and you could see his men watching David as he disappears into the light. 
You could hear the echo coming of his steps. And they're excited. Why? Because this is over. No longer on the run. What are they expecting him to do? Take Saul's life. David gets near Saul. Cuts a piece of his rope. Makes his way. Goes back. They're expecting, if anything, Saul's head. He shows up. Right? They're like, what? No, what? A piece of his robe? What are you doing? It's like, and David's mocking. Didn't even notice. I got that close. Right? That's happening. As that is happening, here's David is having fun with it, mocking the king. The men, we'll see. They are none too pleased. This is not funny. This is not what they had in mind. And what happens is as he is doing this, as he is mocking the king, we're told in verse 5 that then David's conscience began to bother him, began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. This is a profound profound account in which David is sitting there. And you now start to see something of the content of David's soul. If we put it more clearly, the sensitivity of his conscience. And here's the thing. He doesn't feel guilty because of the content of who Saul is, of his character, of what Saul does or does not deserve. No. What does he feel bothered by? He feels bothered by the fact that Saul occupies an office, a position, that has been ordained. And he says, no, no, what am I doing? I'm mocking the one God has installed. And you get to see it. His reverence for God causes him to say, it's almost as if he's saying, I cannot do this. This is God's anointed. And then he clarifies, this is the one God has chosen. He has put him there. And to do this to him was to mock God himself. He, as he's bothered by this, he starts vocalizing this to his men. And these men who are rough and strong and have vengeance in their mouth, they're not happy at all. And he's talking to them about the sensitivity he's feeling. And, he's, and you get the sense that his men are saying, they're hearing him. Like, what, are you ta- what are you talking about? You just cut off a piece of his... All right, you know what? Fine, David, David, David. Listen, if you can't do this, you can't get your hands dirty. Don't worry. We have no problem doing that. Now, can you please step aside? We'll go ahead and take care of this. You get sense that now all the men are wanting to do what David could not do. And in that moment, as David is sharing, he's, oh, this is not good. This is not good. I shouldn't have done that. They start, they start agreeing they're going to go ahead and take care of this problem. They're going to go ahead and end this now. And as they do that, David jumps, he, he moves into, and this is an extraordinary, think about the contrast. David moves into a defense of Saul. And look at what he does. This word, we're told that, he, verse 7, so David restrained his men, which is actually a word that does not do it justice because the literal word in Hebrew means to tear into. 
to tear into. So what does David do? David violently speaks to his men. And he forcefully prevents them. They start, let's take care of this, guys. No! You, you will not! You back up! Stop! Now one more step. You can sense it. Most likely in the farthest reaches of the cave. In this secluded environment. He, he now, can you see the picture? He now steps into the defense of the very man who has been hunting him down for countless days and nights, months and years. The very man who made sure David was not comfortable in his own bed, who ripped him out of his own home, who exiled him out of the place that he was celebrated and loved, who has caused him to not be able to walk during the day without any kind of fear, who has caused him to not be able to sleep throughout the night, wondering if this is the final night before Saul finally achieves what he desires to do. And David steps into this moment and defends his enemy. It's remarkable. And as this happens, Saul ends up making his way out of the cave. No doubt the echoes of his footsteps make their way back. We're told that after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked around, David bowed before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true, for the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in that cave. And some of my men, they told me to kill you, but, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, what I have in my hand, it is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you, and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us because perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me. But I, I, I simply will never harm you. I will never harm you. You start to see something. What does David say? David basically says, you know what, Saul? You have been hunting me down. And I don't know if it's because of people telling you that you should be worried about me, but this proves I'm innocent. Look, I could have. I could have done what you so longed to do to me, but you know what? I didn't. You don't owe me anything. You know why? This is God's justice, not mine to take. I will let God deal with it. And if he desires to do so, so be it. But I, I will never I will never harm you. And in that moment, what are we showing? We're showing that the most powerful man in Israel had lost virtue, he had lost internal fortitude and any degree of true strength. While the one being hunted demonstrated through this act of extreme mercy 
more internal strength, virtue, and fortitude than the very king himself. What do we see here? That the seemingly weaker one demonstrated his tremendous strength over the one who seemed to have position, power, and resource. Do you see it? It's an unbelievable demonstration of forgiveness, mercy, grace, undeserved. These words, these words must have cut through that dark cloud that shrouded Saul's heart in such a way they must have pierced so potently they they stopped him in his tracks. They caused him to rethink what he was doing. And we're told, I just put a paraphrase because I think it captures the tone of how he may have responded. We're told in, in the message translation that when David had finished saying all this, Saul said, can this be the voice of my son David? And he wept in loud sobs. You're the one in the right, not me, he continued. You've heaped good on me. I've dumped evil on you, and now you've done it again, treated me generously. God put me in your hands, and you didn't kill me. Why? When a man meets his enemy, does he send him down the road with a blessing? What is this? May God give you a bonus of blessings for what you've done for me today. I know now beyond doubt that you will rule as king. It is, you embody what a king should look like. The kingdom of Israel is already in your grasp. Now promise me under God that you will not kill my, off my family or wipe my name off the books when it becomes so. Can you hear these words? What do they tell us? They tell us what? That kindness given for evil received is the most powerful weapon to strike another's conscience. Kindness given for evil received is one of the most potent, powerful weapons to strike at another person's conscience. And if these were the final words of Saul, if these words were words that he was stable enough to abide by, this would have been one of the most beautiful ways this, this, this battle could have ended in peace. Unfortunately, David didn't have to exercise this degree of mercy and forgiveness just once and it was done. No, it was not a one and done. It was a continual exercise that he had to practice because Saul, in his instability, ended up reverting back to his old ways and re-engaging the hunt for David's life. And from that moment to the moment Saul died, David had to continually practice what this looked like. He would not be free. He would have to revisit this moment in a very clear way at least one more time. But certainly, every day, Saul still breathed. It's a powerful illustration. David steps into what years before Jesus would step on the scene and call everyone to say, he would say, listen, I want you to pray for your enemies, and I want you to love your enemies. David practiced what that looked like. And if if that is all we would receive, that in itself is worth admiring, worth appreciating. But I, I'd like to suggest that there are other, other points that he, he may want, that he may model for us 
this example, this walkthrough may, may give us. See, I just want to put this on the board for us to consider that not every, not, what does this teach us? Not, not every opportunity to reach our goals is God sent. Um, this, this is what David had to discern. What is discerning? He had to figure out how to separate what was in the gray, how to separate what was right and what was wrong. He had to figure this out. Why? Because everyone else around him is saying, obviously, this opportunity is God-given. Now do it. Step into it. Take it. And you know, I don't know about you, but I feel like in many times in our own lives, we will be presented with certain points of a door opening, an opportunity given, maybe a chance for us to move towards our desire, our inclination, our ambition. And figuring out whether or not that is something we should do is critical to our own faith journey. So how do we do this? How do we make sure we do not step into something we would later regret? Now, in David's case, you could almost hear, you could almost hear it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It was so clear, black and white. Some may not be so clear in our own lives. So how do we walk through this? I, I just selected a couple ways to examine this, to question this, walk this out. Just with four questions. There are many angles we can take. Firstly, I think David shows us something that it would be good for us to consider. That is our conscience alerted by what we're about to step into? It's actually a really good question. Is our conscience alerted by what we're about to step into? You know why? Because what David shows is that he had a sensitivity of his heart. His conscience was still soft. And this is a man who was a warrior, a diplomat, successful in multiple arenas in his life. He was not a man who was sheltered by any means. He was not a man who was, who was you know, in any way protected by the reality and the struggles of life. No. And yet, in the midst of these circumstances, he maintained a sensitivity of soul. This, what does it say? It says that a, a sensitive conscience is actually a benefit, not a hindrance. To be celebrated, not belittled. So what does Jesus say when he was asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? You know what he says? He says, it is to be, he brought a child and he said, look, to humble yourself as a child, to become childlike. By the way, not to become childish. There is a difference. But to be childlike. What is a child like? Child believes things. A child celebrates. A child has a degree of freedom. It is unguarded. There's no way to really, the callousness of life has not worn on that child's heart. It's open. It's full of joy. It takes the jump is sensitive, easily bothered by certain things. That would be the best qualities. Oh, that we would cultivate a childlike conscience. That we would not allow ourselves to be desensitized by the different things we are exposed by. May God have his way in us in that degree. See, we should ask this question, is our conscience bothered, alerted by what we're about to step into? But also, will this decision hinder or strengthen my integrity? Will it hinder or help? What is integrity? Integrity, you know what it is? It's to be the same person despite whatever environment we might find ourselves in. It's to be consistent. That our words and our actions line up. None of us will ever be perfect. Only Jesus did that. But as we seek to follow him, you know what happens? His increasing touch starts to develop wholeness. 
And we start to become people who are able to be consistent at our workplace, in our families, in our friendships. No matter what environment we are in, we start to develop a degree of consistency. And a great question to ask ourselves is, will this decision help or hinder, strengthen or weaken my integrity? Because let's make no doubt about it. Every decision will do one of the other. And confidence only arises when we start to unite our soul and we start to have a consistent way by which we behave and speak and act and walk this out. That is how we start to have a degree of confidence that is real, that is not a facade, that is not pretended, that is not a shield to protect us, but emanates from within us. Will this help? Will this strengthen or hinder? And you know, the, the third I thought would be, and I I, I chose these words carefully for a reason. This is, what is the collective wisdom of the Christ followers we trust around us? In other words, what, what is the counsel we are receiving by those who are seeking to follow the Lord in this life? This is extremely important. Some of us, we may not know very many people who would call themselves Christ followers. And you know what? If that's the case, we're in the best place to discover what a friendship looks like in that regard. It's the beauty of a community to learn how to allow people into our lives and to step into other people's lives and strengthen each other. But this is something David did not have. You remember how he described these men? If you were here last week, he described them in such a way that he says, my soul lies in the midst of lions. Their words are spears and daggers. Their tongues are like a sword. They are violent. They're probably not the best counsel to heed. But we are given a gift in the community we are surrounded by. The friends we surround ourselves by, they actually end up becoming strength to us. Or not. Which is why it's important for us to consider the final question, is that, is this in alignment with what God has revealed in his word? This is a, this is a phenomenal question for us to ask. Is this in alignment with the collective revelation that God has shown us through, through the entirety of his word? What does this mean? It means that there is something in this book, though it is ancient, though it documents things long ago past. You know what it documents? Documents human nature and divine instruction. And that transcends time. How is it possible for us to step into a story that is literally thousands of years old and yet we can so readily identify with what's going on? If not, because if we are able to listen, expose ourselves, cultivate a place of aligning ourselves with his word, we start to hear something of his voice for us for the here and now. Because you ever hear the saying, the mind will justify what the heart wants? It's true. If you don't believe it, just go on a diet. <laughs> the mind will justify what it wants. What the heart wants. It's happened in my life many times. Chocolate is uh, <laughs> tough, but that's what happens. You know what also happens? Our emotions go up and down. Our opinions vary from one place to another. You know what? Cultural winds, when they wave one way, they go the other. Today, this is celebrated. The other day, something else is celebrated. Public opinion changes. Day in and day out, we see it play out in the public forum. Positions are held and then shifted. Why? 
Because it is treacherous ground to try to be one who pleases everyone. And we are in the midst of an environment in which things are constantly changing. And the only place of stability is to be able to figure out what is God saying in the midst of this? It is there. It is there where we measure our desires, our ambitions, our inclinations, proclivities, what we value against what God says is actually for all of time, for what he says actually lasts, this is what is most valuable. It is there we find stable ground and safety. It is there we find consistency. It is there. And what we discover, the more we expose ourselves to his word and we start to attain some degree of biblical literacy, we start to discover something about it. It is not just letters on an ancient document. No, it is as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 103, he says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And through your precepts, I get understanding. And your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I discovered, God, that in your word, as I give it a chance in my own life and seek to align myself with it, you, no matter where I'm at, you have a, a lamp for my feet immediately for my circumstance, and then you show me a way through my path. You show me the way. Where I see no other, you guide me. That is how we figure this out. Secondly, what we're showing here is that not only is it important to think about the opportunities, but also we, when we have a sense of God's direction, what are we shown here? That we will inevitably face the temptation to take a shortcut. That when we start to get, see, this is the great, the great news about drawing near to God is that he responds. That's the good news. And he starts to reveal something of his desire for us. He starts to reveal something of his desire for us personally, relationally, maybe even in our own career, maybe in our future, in our path, in our circumstances. He starts to speak if we listen. And that is phenomenal because we start to get a sense of, wow, your promise over my life is one of wholeness, one of forgiveness and levity of heart. And you have this for me. And you know what the problem, though, is that it doesn't happen right away. It actually takes a long time. And the struggle becomes, once we start to get a sense of what he longs for in our relationships, in our career, in our own lives, we start to become a little bit discouraged and we start to become a little frustrated and maybe even lead to despair when we start to recognize, but it's not happening yet. And something, in, one of two things could happen. One, we, we, sadly, I will say, we may throw in the towel. I, maybe this isn't for me. I know that, that that weren't the case. But others of us, we think, perhaps there's a faster way. Maybe there's a strategy I could take. Um, maybe there's a skill I could develop. Maybe there's a, a shortcut in the midst of this. Speed this up, hey, microwave this, <laughs> right? Is there anything? That's what I want. I want the secret. And what, what do we discover? You know what, David? David, he knew what he wanted. He knew what God wanted for him. But he wanted to do it. It wasn't the what. It was the how. It was the how that mattered. How we get there. How we get there matters to God. The journey matters to God. It is not, listen, if we could think of it this way, in the grand scheme of things, the destination is locked down and guaranteed. It is the way we get there. That seems to be the emphasis in this life. 
the goal, God, if God promises it, it's going to happen. It's how we attain it that matters. It matters. And oh, what a strong word for us to hear and attain to in the midst of a culture that says a little bit of the opposite. May he speak to us. Because lastly, what we're reminded of is this, that we're reminded, we're reminded that knowing Jesus' love for us is what grows the fruit of forgiveness. This is the only way we can ever... Listen, David, let's be careful not to elevate David to a superhuman status. Because you know how David was able to do what he did to Saul? He was able to do it because he had discovered something of God's love for his own life. You know where? He discovered God's love for his own life in the fields taking care of his sheep when he was forgotten by his own brothers and, and father. He discovered God's love for his own life when he stepped into the valley of Elah and confronted Goliath and recognized God is there. He discovered God's love for his own life in the palace when everyone sang about him and celebrated him and everywhere he went he succeeded. And you know where else he discovered God's love for him? He discovered it in the caves of Adullam when he was alone and abandoned and he had no other place to turn to except the face of God. And he discovered God's love for, over his life in the caves of Engedi. Because it wasn't the circumstances that dictated how God gave him love. It was the fact that his presence was in his soul, no matter what circumstance he was in. And it was out of that place that he was able to show Saul what had been modeled to him. Let me give you mercy. Let me give you forgiveness. Let me give you a free debt, no debt. Because I have, I have been given that. And so I give it to you. And Jesus, if, if David stepped in and defended Saul, you know what Jesus did? Jesus steps in and not only defends his enemies. You know what he does? He takes on the punishment they deserve onto himself. He goes onto the cross. And while on the cross receiving the punishment he didn't deserve, but his enemies did, he forgives them. And then he asks God to forgive them. And then he dies. He's put in a tomb, and three days later, he resurrects and comes back with a message, not of anger and hate and vengeance, but a message of life and forgiveness and grace to anyone who would embrace him. And that message has been causing enormous ripples throughout human history for over 2,000 years. A message that converts every person into one who is now capable of the divine. Because how could we when we start to recognize the enormous debt we owe, how could our heart not be moved? But to release somebody else. Cory Ten Boom was a woman who was known during World War II to hide Jews while the Nazis hunted them down. And she wrote a phenomenal book called The Hiding Place illustrated her story, but she also wrote several other books, devotions, that had a thought for the day, and scripture, and I, I came across one that I thought, well, it impacted me. I thought I'd share it, and we're told that in her early 70s, something happened rather dramatic. Her friends, whom she trusted and was vulnerable to, ended up taking advantage of her in such a degree that it truly, profoundly hurt her, and she had a difficult time forgiving them. And it was through a number of months and years that she had gotten to a point of deciding to forgive them. The, the emotion was not there. The desire was not there. But she made the decision, I forgive. I forgive. And so she did. 
And many years later, after her 80th birthday, a friend from America who was aware of the situation ended up visiting her in Holland. And this friend ended up asking her a question. In their conversation, he asks her about the situation. And he says to her, he says, listen, he asks about, about those people from long ago who had taken advantage of me. It is nothing, I said a little smugly. It is all forgiven. By you, yes, he said. But what about them? Have they accepted your forgiveness? They say there is nothing to forgive. They deny it ever happened. No matter what they say, though, I can prove they were wrong. She says that she eagerly went to her desk and started opening up the drawer. And she started to say to her friend, I can prove they were wrong. I have letters, demonstrates, in black and white, what they did. And as she is opening the door, we're told that her friend, she says, her friend said, Corey! My friend slipped his arm through mine and gently closed the drawer. Aren't you the one whose sins are at the bottom of the sea? And yet are the sins of your friends etched in black and white? For an astonishing moment, I could not find my voice. Lord Jesus, I whispered, who takes away all my sins. Forgive me for preserving all those years of evidence against others. Conversation ended. Friend went to where he's staying. And she writes, I did not go to sleep that night until I had gone through my desk and pulled out those letters, curling now with age, and fed them into fed them all into my little cold burning grate. As the flames leapt and glowed, so did my heart. Forgive us our trespasses, Jesus taught us to pray. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And in the ashes of those letters, I was seeing yet another facet of his mercy for me. Some of us, we may have minor cuts and wounds. Perhaps somebody cut us off on the road on the way here, treated us rudely. Others of us, we may have wounds that are so deep, we would never dare to even mention them to another person. And if that's the case, we are not to start at the place of saying, I know this is what I should do, so I should do it. We are to go back to the place of remembering When I deserve nothing else, you gave me love. You took everything that is wrong with me, and you paid what justice required. And then you come back to me, and you embrace me every day. And you love me. You never leave me nor forsake me. No matter what I say or do, you are there, ever present. Help me, God. Heal my soul. Make me one who is like you. Make me one who says, I will never harm you. I leave that up to God. That is how the fruit of forgiveness is grown. May that be the case. May he move in us. May he convert us. Reflections of his amazing, profound love. 
May he guide us through his word and those around us. May he help us be patient with this process. We will get there. May we get there in his timing, for it is perfect and it is good. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving. The band's going to come up, sharing our closing song. I just want to pray. Ask for his blessing over this word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you offer to us a gift we can never measure in its worth and value. But even more than that, you offer to move on our hearts and soften us up and restore to us degrees of innocence, grace, life towards those around us. I pray you convert us, God. And the people who are able to step into moments that require us to offer the fruit of forgiveness. Give us the strength we can only have because of you. Help us, God. Be patient with your process in our hearts. May you lead us through the people around us, through our own conscience, the integrity you want us to build, and through the word you have given us. What a tremendous gift it is. We pray over this word we've shared. We ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.